This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am super excited for today because we have Scott Brown. He's the president and CEO of Fifth Ave Marketing. And he's been on the show a number of times. Fantastic guest. And this episode, I promise you, will not disappoint. No kidding. Will not disappoint. Past guest fan favorite. It's so great to have Scott back on the show. Some exciting things about Fifth Ave is he's kind of our guy to talk to about the Fraser Valley But Fifth Ave has kind of expanded outwards from the Fraser Valley through boutique kind of marketing teams. They're in the interior. They're in downtown Vancouver. They're on the island. Scott is kind of heading up all these projects and he just has his finger on the pulse. It is so great having him back on the show. But there's two kind of things, just teasers that I found most interesting thinking about this episode. One is how demand has morphed over the last six months to a year. And it's not just COVID thing. It's not like, oh, hey, it turns out people need a den because they're working from home or right. uh, or a hybrid model, that type of thing. Much more interesting kind of demand being channeled towards different property type than you'd assume. Okay, And, uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. And then secondly, he puts kind of a high point, high watermark on the price per square foot in Surrey, where it's headed, where it plateaus. Exactly. And we're at plateaus. So this is very interesting for those two reasons. Does Surrey still have legs? That's like a minor point of about a thousand interesting things that Scott says today. So stay tuned for that. I I love, these are like, when we have Scott Brown on the show, I have a tough time listening back to our episodes only because I, you know, I mean, it's hard to listen to yourself, right? Yeah. But I, I generally, we record them. I don't really go back, but episodes with Scott Brown, I definitely go back because I feel like over the years, when I think about guests we've had that have got it right so many times, it's it Scott comes to mind. Yeah. And like I actually, when he says something about a market, I actually truly feel like he's going to be right on it. Or he has, he's got such a track record that whatever he's kind of monitoring or what makes sense to him, usually it plays out, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to have Scott on the program this week at a time where it feels like a lot, there's a lot of headwinds in the market. Very exciting. And uh, he's not afraid to put his neck out there. And uh, this is a fantastic show. I want to say, Matt, before we get to our interview with Scott, these new mic arms that we're using, I feel like I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm Ricky Gervais in the bathtub doing a selfie here. I've got like, it's this, uh, this, this arm, this, it's like, I'm almost lying down. I feel, uh, I feel a little awkward with the, this new The setup. genesis of these mic arms we're using, which we're both kind of moving around. Is that the around. technical name, mic arms? I, I have no idea, but we, we got these basically to make it more comfortable in here. And, and the Kokomo Studios is coming along like gangbusters. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. But one thing I'm finding, this is the first time we're using these, these boom arms where you can yeah. kind of sit however you want. And I'm not sure 
your kind of lying down mode here is yeah. actually working out. And I don't, I feel I'm like the energy sure, yeah. might be a little, uh, a little off. I feel like I have to almost go back to like a table stand. We need this to is, start uh, crouching over the mics again. I this think this is, this is it. But I mean, these are, they're really cool. And the setup looks like way more professional. Oh, than yeah. uh, Check us out our Instagram or, page. Yeah, us collectively standing around a uh, an old fifties uh, mic, which we were doing for years. <laughs> but this is, yeah, it's it's a it's a massive improvement. But I I gotta get comfortable yeah. here. Yeah, gotta get comfortable in Kokomo Studios. Not yeah. that hard because it's pretty nice. This is also my position when I do Wordle in the morning as well in bed. <laughs> First thing I do when I get up. But uh, trying to get that out of my mind. Yeah, this is this is my Wordle. <laughs> my, Wordle stance, uh, which by the way, here's the thing about Wordle. If, if no one's heard about it, I know we're new to this. I was gonna say, well, no, I it's are we, unclear are we burning whether our everybody's gonna go, man, these guys are bringing up something that was like popular five months ago, or if everybody's gonna go, what the hell is Wordle? Well, you know, what's weird is ha our office is uh kind of divided, right? Half the people have heard of it, half haven't, but I know uh, I feel like in half the people are like, I, I don't need to spend more time on my phone, and half the others are like, I need the stimulation. Well, okay, here it is. That's actually, I, I welcome that stimulation, though. I feel like Wordle's a good little uh, thought-provoking exercise in the morning. And uh, there's a lot of competitive, It's it's got a competitive nature it to does, it. It does, it does. But here, I'll tell you what, I've got the best word, I, I Googled this and I'll share this with you. And if, if you don't want this information. Oh, wait, you. this I, is just actually from Google? So I Googled what is the best word to start Wordle because my wife told me, Sabrina told me, use vowel like like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a high yeah, yeah, yeah. like a word with a lot of vowels yeah and so i was like that makes sense because then you kind of suss out the the vowels right you're yeah. like okay I, every word there, usually has vowels. there's a vowels yeah so anyway so that makes sense so then i started thinking about like what is it like aioli or what, what what's the how many actually aioli is probably a aioli is actually an amazing that's, one. that's an amazing <laughs> <laughs> is that yeah, five letters just, yeah. i think i just crushed that i've never but here here's the thing <laughs> <laughs> I I googled <laughs> I googled that. What is you the Google, best oh, word? Okay. What is okay. the best word? And it turns out crane. C R A N E. Crane is the best according to science and whatever they they ran an algorithm. Probably the boys over at REW. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, but somebody ran an algorithm at uh and it and it came out crane. Interesting. So I'm just thinking about, because we, you know, a guy in our office who just joined on to Wordle today. Yeah. Thought Talk about oh, a late bloomer. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. just <laughs> puberty-wise. <laughs> but also he's late to Wordle. Anyways, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, no. but what I wanted to say was he brought up the letters that are provided in Wheel of Fortune as being the good ones. And well, Crane, wait, wait. I don't think... The captures what are the letters I, I i can't name them there's six of them he he told me are consonants or vowels oh yeah you know what they're consonants uh interesting there interesting i so well okay so here's one thing i will tell you crane almost always gets you uh halfway a, there well it gets you either a, a, a green letter or it gets you a um the other kind where it's in the wrong spot yeah 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 oh okay yeah, I so see. it's either gives you one of the two to okay. start working with so I feel like it's a quick way to get to like three or four, like finding the word yeah, in three yeah, yeah. or four. So the other thing that I, I'm, I, and they don't call it colorblind anymore. Um, that sounds offensive. Yeah, it is offensive. Uh, I have that affliction, whatever it's called now. And so does our other brother. Uh, yeah, I'm the only one who doesn't have it. Right. And uh, I feel like the issue here is like I spent an hour or two this morning staring at the word today, and this will come out tomorrow. So I don't think this is a spoiler. 
I spent a word of like an hour or two thinking, okay, it starts with a, it starts with a, I'm messing with the word, trying to figure out. And, uh, I just had the colors mixed up. Interesting. So I don't know why they don't make it more like aggressively, you know, whatever, yellow, purple, and wow. Gray something. Interesting. Yeah. yeah they're too close actually, together. They're too close together. For a game that's on the New York Times, you think they would have taken that into consideration? Yeah. I Just mean, purchase. honestly, I, I was like dumbfounded. I'm like, I, there's, I, I don't think there's a word in yeah. terms of like, because there isn't. I was yeah. just, uh, well, this is, so do you know the story, the backstory? And, and we do. should probably, but the backstory is that somebody had, uh, they, they, their partner. This is a love story. This all is a their, love story. All their partner did was word games. And then as like a, a testament of the other person's love for that, his partner, he uh, made him a, a word game. Yeah. And is that then sold it. Yeah. And then sold it for yeah. millions to, to the New York Times. But I think it was basically a fluke. Anyways, Matt, yeah, get, getting better at Wordle. Uh, Crane, that's your takeaway from yeah. the end. <laughs> Crane, Wordle, and also we should say, before we go, one, this Instagram thing's a lot of fun. It is. Um, it is. Speaking of late to the party, Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on Instagram, we're posting way more, getting used to it. It's a, I'm get, actually, a lot I'm of gonna, feedback. You know, here's the thing. Just in honor of this Instagram thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post this story right now live in the podcast studio live in kokomo studios live in kokomo studios i'm doing a story right this second and i don't know how so let's cut <laughs> how do we edit this out <laughs> okay matt well without further ado why don't we cut to the, our interview today because this is a fantastic conversation with scott brown ceo and president of fifth ave marketing enjoy the goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the vancouver real estate market at no cost to you the listeners to that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This week's podcast is brought to you by Hawkeye Wealth. Yeah, past guest fan favorite Justin Smith and his team. Fantastic guy, Justin Smith over at Hawkeye Wealth. Hawkeye helps our clients invest in various private real estate investments, such as residential and industrial development projects with an aim to diversify their portfolios and achieve better risk-adjusted returns than they would find elsewhere. Yes. You, you, you really dragged on that elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> well, always when I think of Justin, I think big network, great due diligence, and a deal finder. If you're interested in learning more of what they're doing over at Hawkeye Wealth and the opportunities that become available, head over to hawkeyewealth.com. That is hawkeyewealth.com. I finally got it. Hawkeye, like he's a, he's a deal finder. He finds the deals. That's hawkeyewealth.com. Thanks, Justin and the team. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. Okay, so we're here with Scott Brown, CEO of Fifth Avenue, and also a leader of some other businesses that we're going to talk about, Scott, but uh, welcome back to the show. It is absolutely a pleasure. I was looking forward to this because I always find when I talk to you guys, like, you know, if the time just goes by so quick, but, you know, and, I, and it's funny because you did say, do I have some questions for you? So right off the top, I'll give you a little 
introduction in a bit just about what's kind of gone on in 2021 and 2022, both locally and around the province. But my quick question for you, I got a couple. One was, how was your 2021? It was a record. It, well, yeah, we never Thanks get for a- asking, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, was, it was a record year with our business. We were busy, very busy. Probably the busiest year, I think, personally and professionally, I think we've both probably ever had. It was a big year, yeah. And uh, yeah, and the podcast that, so. and the podcast is growing. And which the podcast, is good. Is our numbers are up, which is exciting. <laughs> so all in all, there you uh, go. Yeah, it was a good year, for sure. Yeah. And how how about uh, how about yours? Well, across BC it was a very good year, but the last time we went through this as our organization, now we were one organization. Now we're four off one platform. But the last time we went through this, 2017 where we had record sales. So Fifth Avenue itself sold more homes this year than it's ever sold in its 40-year history or 41 years. But we felt better about how we finished because in 2017, it was like we were a race car driver that almost went into the wall, won the race. And I remember sitting with our shareholders and they said, you don't seem very happy. And I said, because we paid one hell of a price to do this. So this time we finished and staff were healthier for the most part, happier, more balanced, more sustainable, really proud of themselves and looking forward to their break. So I felt good as a leader that, you know, we didn't trash our people setting a record. <laughs> yeah. So it was sustainable. Actually, you know, that's funny because when I think of 2017, I feel like on our end, we've developed our systems in a way that uh, it kind of the same. Yeah. 2017, I felt like I was going to die at the end of the year and uh, feeling all right right now. Is that what you attribute that to, Scott? Yeah, well, also, we're very fortunate that we have... So our business strategy, since we've been talking over the years, was a bit different this year in that we view British Columbia and my partners as craft beer, okay? And our partners in Ontario, I call Labatt's and Molson. They do 6,000 units in Ontario. They're the biggest project marketing tower firm in Ontario called Baker Real Estate. So they're a sister company to me, and we share notes and ideas. But in BC... The BC market doesn't seem to like that. So Fifth Avenue has always been very pure about staying focused on the suburbs and the Fraser Valley. And we say the suburbs because the tendencies in some of the parts of the non-valley, like parts of Coquitlam, behave the same as the valley. But generally, where affordable product is, and we don't go into other markets. But we've been compelled by some developers, such as Belford Properties and that, and a company called Brivia, to get into those downtown markets. So we incubated with some previous talent that I've known, a downtown firm in 2021 called Baker West. And their 80% of their staff reflects those target markets in terms of culture. They have an office on Georgia. They've already listed over a billion in real estate. They probably sold $250 million in their first year. And they listed the largest passive house in the world, Tom Wright Architecture, that they're going to be marketing in 2021. So we have that downtown focus now, but with a separate culture and organization. But we fund off, you know, I work on all the businesses with one platform for HR, everything. Then in, in the Okanagan, we have a company called Epic. So another craft beer, strong local leadership. The two leaders up there, Shane and Kurt, have been at it for, you know, 25 or 30 years, longtime Kelowna residents. We had a record with Epic. So we took Epic over when my buddy passed away in COVID unexpectedly 57 year old guy super healthy three-year-old kid and riding his mountain bike and he had uh, a seizure and traumatically passed away so i ran that business for free for about nine months and then in 2021 his wife asked us to buy it so we did went from three people to 30 people they had a record year and they are just you know chomping at the bit for 2022 
And then on the island, we invested in a group that was looking to find a partner to help them grow. And so there's a group called the Condo Group we're rebranding, and they're going through high growth. So we've got a leadership position by these strong leadership teams in each of these regions. And I'm kind of the, the center hub of keeping them all supported and knowing what's going on in their markets. But together, when I added it up just recently, because we're getting all our finals financials in, across the province, we quietly sold 2,000 new homes last year. Wow. And we sold over a billion and a half in real estate. Wow. And so, so that leadership position, by having those unique expressions of brand, but the common platform, it's really sets us up well for growth. So I'm super excited about 2022 because I have such strong leadership in each market that the clients all love. I get to be Gandalf, I call it. I get to show up where I need to be. And when they don't need me, I can smoke my pipe and think about the future by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I didn't realize that Baker West was connected with you guys and they've been great to work with. It's, it's Jackie is is running. Yeah, Jackie Chan and Harry Minhas. Yeah, yeah, Batman and Robin as they call them. Yeah, they're they're a good crew over there for sure. That's all. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Well, good to hear. Yeah. So the one I get asked a lot, and I'm probably going to ask you this then. So I theme every year. Done it since I was 18, keeping a journal. So last year, my theme for the year was return, and I didn't know why at the start of the year. But what happened through the year was, yes, we you know returned good money for our clients, good money for ourselves and our shareholders. But we returned to working with people that I've known for 20 years and not worked together in 15. And so it was really, there were lots of positive emotional returns and, and just, you know, going back to looking at things we used to do and doing them better. So my theme for this year is more both personally and professionally pace. So my question for you guys was, in a word, how would you describe last year? And in a word, how are you describing 2022? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say in a word last year, I would probably say systems. Because our growth kind of forced us to create more valuable systems to take on the volume of business that we were needing to handle. And changing life circumstances, right? Yeah. You don't want to be out. That's more than a word, though, Matt. That's the problem. Systems. Systems. (laughs) But this year, I I would say, I guess, in many ways, it's, it's progress, right? I mean, I feel like we've got better systems in place, and now it's just kind of evolving, and it's it's building. Actually, maybe it's build. Maybe it's build. Well, I think build's a very interesting word. And I do think that what happens in our business a lot, and I get images in my head sometimes, and, and I'll share them with people selectively so they don't think I'm crazy or something like that. But there's a lot of deja vu in this market. So 2000, this last year felt at times like 2017, but we felt 2016, 2017, but I, we felt more on top of it. But that was the previous peak. And then 18 kind of was okay but you could feel it slowing down heavily through the last half of the year and a lot of government intervention. And then 19 was the, you know, the worst year in 10 years. So everybody's kind of saying, well, is this the end? That's the conversation I hear about 2021 or sorry, 2022 and 2023. And while I think we have to be careful, I don't, I'm not that pessimistic, but what the image I got was kind of the sea, but not a wild sea. And so what I think is there's going to be the same, we may not have another record-setting historical year, both resale and pre-owned, but it's pretty hard to top when you have that kind of historical year again. But I think it's going to be closer to that level than people think, but it's going to be wavier. And if we've learned anything through pandemics, how much we have to adapt, I do think we're going to see waves this year. So we're going to see a quick start to the year, which we are. But I think three or four weeks before that first interest rate increase, we're going to see a flurry. And then we might see that the month after that kind of 
settles down a little bit and then people sort of get confident again and go. So I think it's going to be a, a good year, 2022, and even into 2033. But I think it's going to be a little bit wavy. So we're going to have to make sure that we don't, you know, lose our minds in the short term when things sort of slow down all of a sudden and then pick up again. Well, yeah. yeah and I, and I, and bef- maybe even before we get into the market stuff, because I, I find that's really interesting to reflect on your business. And, and it, it's a question of to try and get it down to one word. Um, but it sounds like you guys have really been, I mean, growing. And who is, is Fifth Avenue becoming? And how has your business changed as a result of this steroid injection into the Fraser Valley? Yeah, what I would say is that Fifth Avenue is becoming, with the leadership and the maturity of people like Jamie Squires and Michelle, who've been with us for longer than I have, 118, 112 years, it's maturing into what it meant to be in its focus. But the difference is, we're backed financially by a partner called Peerage Realty Partners out of Ontario, who happen to own all of Sotheby's Canada. They're the largest franchisee of Sotheby's franchises in the world. They're the ones backing our growth strategy in Western Canada. And so they came in and said, you know, you've got good talent. Let's help you do more business. So, But I said, I just don't want to do it by growing fifth. Fifth strength is its culture and its uniqueness and the fact its teams live and breathe the Fraser Valley and the suburban markets every day. Downtown firm, Jackie and Harry and them, they live that, they play the style. For instance, in the Valley, you know, I wouldn't drive a Ranger over to my client meeting because he'd be joking with me, he's paying me too much, nor would I wear a suit to a meeting. But downtown, you do have to play differently because you're talking about, in Burnaby, 2,400, 1,200, you know, 1,300 a square foot. So it's a different expression. And when I work globally, I learned about all these local cultures and how to respect them. So I view BC that way. You know, so the point is, is that our partners, Peerage, have invested us to be able to create that, that Western Canadian kind of strong local focus with a common core. And so that's going to make, and we're all sharing ideas because they all get along. So I'm doing something year round where, you know, we're pulling best practices out of the team in Kelowna and applying them in the other three businesses. And Jackie and Harry are leading with technology. So we're adopting their technology. So what's fun for me is inherently all these businesses that we've created are in the same business, but they're they're having healthy competition to come up with the best new ideas to grow our businesses. They like each other. And so I get to be kind of the keeper of this this wonderful collaborative. And, and last time I did that was 2006, the last time I oversaw a billion and a half in sales in a year. And it wasn't as stressful because I had really good teams. The difference was, uh, was instead of one province, they were, you know, in three different you know, regions of the globe, but so it's a lot easier to manage. I don't have to fly 14 hours to check in on somebody, but it's, so it's really exciting, but it also says a lot about BC's growth, right? And the exodus out of Vancouver and the aging population and what's happening in the Okanagan. The Okanagan, the fascinating pattern, especially Kelowna is very similar, but slightly, slightly more accelerated than what we're seeing the growth in greater Victoria. You know, so each of the markets are in the Fraser Valley starts to show you know, lead Kelowna where it could go, but downtown Vancouver has aspects of that. So it's fascinating. BC real estate is just, you know, you guys are into this too. It's like, you can really geek out on it because it's it just, if, if you think you've got it figured out, it will change on you. If you think you've got that figured out, you'll have a little pandemic or some type of a flu to deal with this global. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's kind of day by day, right? Uh, the It's such a dynamic market. You know, Scott, just thinking about the Fraser Valley where Fifth Ave is located. Right. Can we kind of do 
an overview of the year of 2021, more in the sense of like, I just talked to somebody who we don't really operate in Surrey, but lost out in multiple offers on a 2012 one bed. It was over a thousand a foot, right? So can we talk about prices and what's going on? Let's jump right in there. Okay. Cause that is a big topic. So first of all, when you take the Fraser Valley and the suburban markets, and I've been tracking this regularly, I've said two things over the last four or five years, enough times publicly that I can say, okay, when I was wrong was very obvious. And when I was right was very obvious. What I have been saying for some time is that Surrey City Center and Guilford, when they get high-rise going there, will be over $1,000 a square foot. I started saying that in 2015 to Snickers, okay? And 16, 17, it's there now. So what is going on? Not only is it there, but the other thing I've been tracking for years about the suburban markets in the Valley is the share of the market. So more and more, both on the resale market, or I call pre-owned and new, a larger percentage of all the transactions are occurring east of Coquitlam, right? And south of the Fraser, you know, and north of the Fraser, but east of Coquitlam. And so what's happening is the center of gravity of the entire market is shifting to probably somewhere kind of in the middle of kind of Burnaby, New Westminster for the whole market, including the North Shore and Vancouver. But the other thing that we talked about happening was that we talked about when we were on your podcast one other time, I said the U.S. dollar just changed, just like globally, right? There's a you know question about what will be the currency. And I watch all these historical things on Netflix with one of my sons because it's quite fascinating. He finds them. And one was, I forgot that when I was a kid, the pound was the bomb more than the U.S. dollar, <laughs> right? So in the Vancouver market, it used to be downtown Vancouver was the U.S. dollar. You pin everything to what's selling for high rise in downtown, and all the other prices were based on that. Well, that's not not that's a unique market anymore, but it's an outlier. So now it is Metrotown, and Metrotown thirteen fifty to fifteen hundred square foot. So it makes sense then that from an investor perspective and an user perspective, everything shifted over one to two neighborhoods. So I pulled some North Vancouver stats the other day, for instance, from a couple years ago, and I printed out today's Surrey stats and Langley stats, and they look the same. So in other words, it's normal for a townhome to be a more, more than a million dollars in North Van. Now it's probably a million and a half. But, it, but when you used to be able to buy an entry-level townhome in Surrey for $600,000, and then two years later, it's a million, it looks a bit weird. But then when you look at it, at the growth of North Vancouver, you go, okay, this is, this is actually where this is relatively sustainable. So COVID did drive a shift out to these areas for living and working, and there may be a bit of an influx back. But a lot of the people still are coming out here and going, you used to go and live in these communities because you could afford something, but you were willing to compromise your lifestyle. And now people are going, oh, I don't need to go down to Vancouver every day for fun. I can in COVID. And even if I can, there's a brew pub here. There's something like that. So, so the city itself, its its lifestyle is kind of becoming more centered into where you can live and still enjoy things. So that is the biggest trend: is that the the valley is not your father's Oldsmobile, and we're seeing significant growth. Thing that shocked me: Surrey City Center high rise. One thing is the pricing, but the other one is that was for one of the quarters that was the highest absorbing market for concrete product, and not due to the fact it was the only one supplied. Now, yes. It has more canvas to develop high-rise than other neighborhoods. But Burnaby has lots of canvas still. So it's outselling Burnaby at times in terms of days on the market, absorption, and even price growth. So, And we're really just sort of getting started in terms of people moving into that area now 
and starting to animate that area. And I think, still think Surrey City Centre is probably one of the most under food and beverage and entertainment areas for the amount of housing that's being built. So that will come too when, you know, Anthem gets going with other phases and things like that. But so Surrey City Centre is not your father's Surrey. It's not the butt of any joke anymore. It's actually treated the way Burnaby was probably viewed five years ago. And I look at Guilford, which has got lots of upper potential. And I remember, and you guys probably remember, where Metro Town sort of became the darling and the bomb, probably in like 2000, I don't know, 11, 12, where it sort of just took off and then everybody was there. And then Brentwood had to underprice. And then Brentwood became amazing and overpriced. And now Berkland and Metro Down are really just two different lifestyles, right? But they're pretty similar in pricing. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Surrey City Center and what will happen when Guilford comes online. Guilford Woodframe does not discount Surrey City Center Woodframe. Their high rise will not and might surpass it. And what people don't realize is while the light rail went away, the rapid bus is literally a five to seven minute ride from Guilford Town Center to Skytrain. So the whole point is that area, Guilford, both the canvas that you can still buy to develop, the demand for rental housing and for and for end user demand. So those two areas really just are behaving a heck of a lot like Brentwood and, and uh, Metrotown did three or four years ago. Sorry, just to jump in quickly, somebody out there is is thinking, okay, Scott had a line on this in 2015. The idea of pulling kind of the numbers from North Van and making the comparison and, and kind of the North Van stats telling the future of Surrey in some respects has probably got somebody thinking, where next? Like, what are you talking about right now that's your 2015 Surrey conversation? Right. So it's an interesting question if I hear it correctly. So first of all, North Van, if you look at those numbers, actually behaves more like West Van. West Van's become ultra luxury and a little bit of an outlier. So the question is, okay, in the Valley, where's the hard ceiling, Right. Right, right. Because at some point you can't just keep making homes smaller to make the end sales price attractive. But the other thing that's driving this is cost. It's not one or two developers just getting greedy with pricing. You can't make a high rise viable anymore if you probably can't, including the land price, right? Have you know seven hundred dollars. But where does it normalize out? probably I'd look to Burnaby and say, well, Burnaby is a normal market right now at 1350, can still absorb, can still settle to an end user to that. When you get to 1500 to 2000 a square feet, you start having to rethink what you're doing or switching to another neighborhood. So I think Surrey has some price appreciation in front of it still, but I think it has more long-term sustainability. I don't think it's going to be a $2,000 a square foot market. I don't think it's going to be 1500 but 1350 in three to five years is not out of the question. But then it will probably ceiling off because that's what happened in downtown Vancouver, right? Ceiling off. Right. Ceiling off really at about 2000. And then the luxury buyer is such an outlier that it's really 3000, right? Like when they do the new Weston and they tear that down at some point, that's going to be 3,500 a square foot. But people who do that don't try to sell it all on a weekend, right? It's pure end user that you're selling to. Right. And, and you know what? So that's definitely kind of part of the question. And I, it was, uh, a little convoluted. So we're talking 1350 is where you think Surrey levels out. I'm wondering if there's a market outside of Surrey in which you're kind of excited about in the way that you were talking about Surrey in 2015, <laughs> well, where you're like, yeah, Hey, look, yeah. this market's got huge legs. Yeah. I'll give you a couple that, that are what I'd call kind of merging stars. Abbotsford enjoyed, basically was the last market to kind of recover from, like it was okay, but when, when we had that sputter in 2019, 
Abbotsford came back volumes first, but their prices only started to increase the last little while. Yeah, so so I think Abbotsford's got legs in front of it, and especially with all the improvements to the highway and Western Abbotsford, that leading edge, and a big development going in by Wall Financial or partners of Wall Financial near High Street. Abbotsford's got legs, but Abbotsford's behaving like Langley did three or four years ago. So that's, and Surrey is, Langley's really like Surrey, so it's all shifted over one neighborhood, right? The other one, the upstart one, where you can still find affordability that all of a sudden became a market out of nowhere, is Mission. Mm-hmm. Right, they had had a remarkable year last year. You couldn't sell anything with Pace two years ago in Mission, and now developers are chasing land in Mission because it's affordable and they can still deliver product entry level that's attractive to people. So Maple Ridge has been hot. So, but the other one is anywhere along that SkyTrain, the premiums already being realized, but anywhere like Fleetwood Village near the Fleetwood Station 160, it's all the way along. That whole SkyTrain to Langley, that, that SkyTrain, the promise of it, the federal funding announcement, basically added $150 a square foot to wood frame product in Langley City practically overnight. You used to be able to buy a townhome in the city of Langley in a quasi-transitional area for 300 bucks a square foot. It's now 500 The wood frame pricing for the newest stuff that, that we and others have sold is starting in, in the high sixes in Langley City. And in, in Langley, it's township, it's over 700 some of that's cost driven, but so that whole SkyTrain's having a big, a huge effect. You know, just thinking about how, you know, we're sitting in Canby Village in Vancouver right now, and, and this is the market we operate in. One of your comments earlier kind of reminds me of, you know, a guest we had on a long time ago from the CMHC who made a comment about single family detached in Vancouver being detached from kind of overarching <laughs> market trends. Like, it's just like, that that market is it doesn't really uh, you know live in the same world in a lot of ways. Something that struck me about the way you're talking about Vancouver is it almost seems detached from the rest of the region in in certain ways. Does the narrowing price gaps should we still be thinking about this in terms of Vancouver is X price and Surrey's this price and this narrowing gap doesn't make sense anymore? So Vancouver's on sale, or in your mind is that kind of that logic? not really useful anymore? Well, I think it's kind of two things. First of all, it's still useful, but you have to, I have to reprogram my brain to the new normal. Okay. So basically just to, to be, you know, allegorical, I literally carry around a piece of paper on it that I've handwritten out and I can type it out and everything, but I like to handwrite it at least once a month. I go through all the key neighborhoods across Metro Vancouver and I write down what the average home is selling for and what the average single family for is look at it. When I saw that the average home and now in Vancouver isn't what the, the board says one thing, but the average detached home, right, is basically two million in North Vancouver's two million. I go, okay, that's good to know, right? And so in Surrey, all of a sudden it's one point three for a detached house. It's probably going to one point five and nobody's making more of this stuff. And if they are making more in some cases in the valley, the costs are such that they have to start at 1.5. So I think that there's still viability in all this, and the Vancouver market's still important. If you're looking at townhomes, Canby Corridor pricing is the U.S. dollar for that. You look at townhomes in high density on SkyTrain in the Canby Corridor, and you see what those are going for, and you go, okay, if you're doing something out in South Surrey, it needs to make sense if the buyer was also looking closer to town. So it's still valid. It's just the, the comparisons need to be updated frequently now. And the other one is you also need to know when you're looking at an outlier. And, you know, and just go, okay, like, 
that one didn't make any sense, but it's still sold, right? So we had a project, for instance, in Cloverdale that, you know, the developer read it and was aggressive with pricing and it absorbed and sold up quickly. People were buying anything along SkyTrain. Cloverdale Town Center is not that close, but they still thought it was. But it defied. It was an outlier. Why was it an outlier? Very scarce and the only new one in that market and normally a very challenging pre-sale market. But more importantly, what it defied was it defied the logic that single family in South Surrey is more than Cloverdale single family. But we sold the multifamily for more than multifamily in South Surrey. That's an outlier. But to your point, the interesting thing about it is where we've had to reprogram ourselves the most is if you go back in that deja vu thing and go, okay, 2017, the most popular product that people were starting to program more wasn't chasing small in the townhome sector. It was the mid-sized sedan, I called it, or SUV. It was 1750 to 1900 square foot townhomes, and you could buy them for $700,000. The developer made money. You were happy with what you got. And you were like, I don't need a single family home yet because I, I don't have you know, a million dollars at that time for a nice single family home. And then along came the stress test and wiped that buyer out by eroding. What I call the upgrade buyer got wiped out by erosion and buying power because the single family detached buyer was still buying it. The difference this time around is the people we're selling this bigger stuff to and our whole industry is, you know, at a million dollars now for 1750 in Langley is the single family buyer who's given up on single family, either affordability wise, lifestyle wise, or some combination. And so something we've been saying all along is that the mid-sized sedan will be sedan will be not the upgrade townhome buyer, but the alternative single family buyer. And when you start selling master on the main townhomes at 1.6 million for 2000 square feet, that's an alternative single family home buyer. That might be a buyer who normally was trying to take a million off the table, who's now viewing it more as I'm okay taking a lateral move for 10 years and just getting out of my big house with a lot or a somewhat lateral. So that's the biggest shift across the whole industry is looking at townhomes and realizing, should we be worried about this and that people aren't going to be able to close on these or afford interest rate increases? And we go, no, it's a buyer who could buy up, who's buying down in terms of space, but up in terms of spec. Right. So they mm-hmm. want new. They don't want an attached 20 year old house, but they've just given up on the single family market. And partly because there's no supply either. Right. Yeah. It's funny that 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 rings true. Yeah. That was the biggest shocker for me last year was just I, I thought some of the appreciation in condominiums was, was very interesting. But what happened with townhomes in the last 90 days shocked me. So I've had to reset my normal. OK, a million dollars is normal for 1750 because in Langley, you still pay over a million for a detached house. So. Someone who doesn't want three hundred thousand dollar, you know, it's more in mortgage. That's what they're going to buy, and they're well positioned in neighborhoods where they're being done because most of the stuff that's new is all, you know, relatively new master plan communities, not infill where you don't necessarily know what you're looking at, right? Right, right. And here the question often is: even if you're buying in the entry level detached house market, you're, you're looking at something that needs work, right? Which a lot of people don't want to take on yeah. and therefore they move to the yeah. half duplex or the yeah, townhouse market half du- duplex. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, that's, if you go into other large urban centers, you know, people buying at Brownstone in New York, were you know, fortunate to be able to buy anything in places like New York and London. Sometimes it's how well you lease, not what you bought. Right. Mm-hmm. So do, do I think we'll see over five to 10 years from now, more high end rental? We do not just entry level rental, but I don't think we're going to see it right away. But what's, 
what's interesting with that stat about the townhomes is that's just not that's not just in Vancouver. That's just not in Surrey. Surrey. The Kelowna townhome prices, you cannot buy an entry-level townhome in Kelowna now for under $700,000. So it's caught up to the valley. You cannot buy one on the island pretty much at seventeen fifty for under a million. So the greater Victoria in particular. So that townhome thing was somewhat BC-wide. And this is where I actually paid to go on the radio to say something the other day. And we've put it out a few times. But you've heard the talk about a federal property tax. Right. Yep. And they said that it should start with a million dollars. So I went on the radio and said, okay, just talking current events and said, in principle, I don't necessarily have an issue with it. But for BC residents, the people in Ontario or in Ottawa that are protesting and saying that don't really understand that someone with a million dollar home in BC is not filthy rich. (laughs) They probably have a six or $700,000 mortgage. And they pay a high price to live where they live. So your number's probably at best half, right? Too, too low or too, you know, it's not, it should be double to be higher or maybe triple. But you, you punish almost everybody in BC with a house if you put that tax into the million bucks. So there should be a serious tax revolt if they push that forward at that price. You know, because that's, that's, you know, look at the stats, right? A million dollars for a town home. Is that person super wealthy? They're probably two incomes. So that was where I just kind of was shaking going, here are some people, are, in my opinion, and I had to get passionate about it. Interesting principle, way out of touch with the reality. Even in Ontario, you can't own anything for under a million. So right. hopefully that would be political suicide for somebody to try to bring that in. Yeah. But, you know, it, go ahead. No, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I, and I, I kind of want to end in maybe we can we can keep keep talking about this. But one thing you had kind of mentioned was the interest rate. You mentioned it in passing, yep. but you know, all signs point to rising interest rates this year. How does that impact not only the pre-sale market, but is it a good time to buy a pre-sale? And are you thinking, like, it sounds like at least in the townhouse market, (laughs) (laughs) at least in the townhouse market, it doesn't sound like you think, it, it sounds like a lot of these people were at a higher price bracket to begin with. So it sounds like they're fairly funded to sustain interest rate increases. Well, well, I'll kind of come at that from a couple of ways, because first of all, as much as I pride myself on being, I'm not bias free, I'm bias aware, okay? So <laughs> I'm, I'm aware I have a bias to say that, of course, it's a good time to buy, buy and buy lots, because I want to put my other kids to college, right? Um, <laughs> is it a good time to buy? Actually, to be very direct, isn't it depends question at any time. It's a good time to buy if you need to buy something. It's a good time to buy if you, it meets your goals and objectives. It's a good time to buy if you think that you can afford, right? If you can, generally what we know about real estate and having done this for three decades, if you can afford to only buy and sell when you want to, you're generally safe, okay? If you find that circumstances force you to buy or sell, then you tend to get hurt. So is a, is a long-term buy and hold for BC a good strategy? I think it is. And what's different now than in 2006 2007 and even 2017 is most of the people, for instance, who are buying these townhomes are prepared to complete on them. The deposits are higher and they've had to think through, can they complete and rent and hold it as opposed to flippers who were, you know, going to walk away at closing. So this market's had very little completion failure. But what I would tell you is in terms of it, it's a good time to buy is what I'm saying is the difference this time is that last time the interest rate increases plus the stress test, 
took 20% of the buying power away from people who were stretching to own. This time around, it's not the same in that there are fewer people stretching to own and there's more people changing their expectations of what they will own. So it's people who could service a mortgage at a million and a half going, I'm fine at a million, I don't need a single family. So I'm not as worried. I do not think the interest rates are going to put downward pressure on absorptions of townhomes or pricing. I also don't think there's enough supply. So I really don't expect a whole bunch of erosion of buying power in 2022. If they were to go up more significantly, usually then that means we got something else going on. Like one of the hardest lessons I learned was dumb things. I'll be really honest. Like um, in 2007 and eight, when we saw the recession coming and I was working out of Vancouver, but I was, I had a client, so I had to live in Dubai a week a month and CEO of a Saudi Prince company that I was working for sat privately with me and he called the shot. We're sitting in December in a hotel, having a drink in 2017 he said, Scott, I need to get these markets, these projects to market fast globally, because he said, other than maybe the Philippines, no one's going to be able to sell anything in 2008 to 10. Vancouver bounced back very quickly. In the States, they refer to this period as the Great Recession. They've marketed it and labeled it, right? So the mistake I made was I thought the high, high end, the luxury stuff was recession proof because the people still had money. What I didn't realize was in a deep recession like that, the people with the most, most money, the high I end, are so anxious about their other interests and their investments in stocks that they don't buy anything high end other than small luxuries. So I think our biggest exposure probably is on the ultra affluent side down the road. I think we can sustain demand here through 2020, I think that as long as the interest rates are sitting there below five or 6%, including, you know, which they're not predicted to go to, right? But you still, at some point, they do have to go up, right? You'd imagine so, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah, been a long time. Factor, well, don't forget, though, they were on their way up. And then a little thing called COVID hit. And I don't right. make light of that. That basically was what wiped it out because we can't raise them. And I think the government's in a bit of a catch-22 or the Bank of Canada because on the one hand, they want to keep, they want one foot on the brake and they one foot on the gas. And so that sounds like some type of spin you create in Fast and Furious 12 or something. That, that's, that's also how Matt drives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it does feel like you're trying to work both sides. And we used to do that in Saskatchewan in parking lots. And no, it's been around, right? <laughs> the donuts. Uh, that was before all-wheel drive, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, actually on, just in on. an Uber. Uh, one of the guys drove like that, and it was man, not good for the stomach. Anyway, sorry, go on. You pay extra for the reckless version of Uber. <laughs> <laughs> so what I can tell you, there's something just as a bit of a closing note. There's certain things that happen through COVID where people are realizing one of two things. A, people are going to have had enough and there is a pent up demand for travel and socialization. So if you're planning buildings and you're scared to plan amenities because everybody's going to be afraid they're going to make each other sick, that's going to be over. Right. You know what? And again, you look at history, you know, if you go back to 2000 or 1917 or whatever, after two or three years, there was the Roaring Twenties came. And then the Roaring Twenties had its own underlying undoing. So there was this pent up demand to do things, to travel, to spend, to invest. I think there's some of that's going on. What worries me most is the inflation, the cost inflation. That's probably the biggest thing that worries me more than the interest rates. The interest rates might actually quell that because at some point, you can't just keep driving cost into your pro forma, making your units smaller 
or passing it on to the customer. At some point, the customer says, I'm out, I can't afford it. And then what happens is no new stock comes. So then the stock we have inflates on the rental side, right? So it's a bit of a, it really is this whole metaphor of the waves and the foot in the gas, right? Like which one is dominant? It's because you're riding the pedal sometimes or sometimes you're on the accelerator. But I do think that townhome demand and some of the bigger condominium demand is super sustainable because people are changing the way they're willing to live. Mm. Scott, that, that actually leads right to the question I was thinking. You know, we've talked a lot on this program about historically low inventory levels, but we're always thinking about the resale, the resale market when we talk about that. What can people expect in 2022 and maybe even 2023 in terms of new projects coming to market? Do you have a lot in the pipeline or can we expect some decent inventory or what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, good example. So we sold across BC 2000 units last year, right? Our conservative forecast adding up to sales that we expect to do at SIF and Condo Group and Epic and Baker West is over 3000. So we do expect more supply but not enough supply. We have more supply to bring to market. I think the resale market is still going to be really tight on listings. you know. And so what's happening is that's actually in markets like Victoria and Kelowna, making their pre-sale market behave more like Vancouver because typically people in Victoria are willing to buy pre-sale, but not all at the beginning. So Bear Mountain, for instance, we might have in the first 30 days of sales in Vancouver sold 90% and raised prices while we did it. There in 90 days, we sold you know, probably closer to 70%, but that's a record for that area, especially at that price point. Mm-hmm. And you know, so so what it's doing is that whole lack of supply on the new side is actually accelerating pre-sale interest in secondary markets like Victoria and Kelowna. Secondary, not in terms of lifestyle, in terms of size and volume of you know, market. Right, right, right. Scott, yeah. I don't think we've actually ever really spoken about this with you, but I mean, it's, it, I'd love to get your take on it. What in the in the resale market? What, what's your take on what's what's driving this low inventory right now? Well, I'll, I'll give you. It's a great question, and what I'll tell you is, I guess as a consumer, you know, I kind of made my living early in my career as a FBI profiler of retailers and consumers, <laughs> just <laughs> watching things. And what I'd say is that typically, on average, let's say hypothetically, ten percent of the people every year, right, reassess their housing satisfaction realize they're disappointed or of core their housing dissatisfaction either it becomes so painful or they're so desiring more space because we've had a kid or something like that so about 10 percent or 20 percent of the population every year goes through that and then takes action and buys something right what covid did from march 19 to 2020 till pretty much for at least a year is it caused almost 90 percent of the population at the same time to question right their housing satisfaction and where they live. And so that created a big bubble of demand or not bubble balloon. And that balloon's not popped. It's still got some heat in it because some people said, oh no, I'm good right now. Other people still are. So that what that did was that's what drove so much of the resale was some people would said, I was out of here. Other people were saying, I'm and now is the time. But I think that's the surprise of, of COVID was there's always unintended consequences. Everybody stays home and all of a sudden everybody realizes they don't like being at home. So they got to move, right? And if people don't have to move, and there's two other reasons why it might be sustained. The F word is one of them. Do you know how little we've talked about in the last, since COVID, about the foreign buyer? Right, right. 
are they still out there? Yes. Are we still trying to government federally trying to shut them down or whatever? But all this happened. The record setting market, historical record setting market in BC was happened without any mention negatively or positively of the F word, the foreign mm-hmm. buyer, right? You guys aren't talking about it. We're not seeing them, right? Um, they can't get in the country, right? You know, they got their own problems. So it, it, it went away. But the other one is the I word, right? Guess what's on the sidelines is another wave, immigration. Right. You, you deal with the health issues, you open that up. Just as we think maybe the market's going to see a little bit of a wave reduction, there'll be a wave of immigration, they'll drive it again. So right now, I think that this market across BC is incredibly sustainable. It can weather almost anything, showed it could weather a global recession. We bounced back fast. People here don't realize that, right? 2000, end of eight and nine were dead. And at Christmas, December 2009, people started launching again to see where it was at. And away Vancouver went, right? So the only thing that, you know, that troubles me a little bit is, okay, it's probably more things we can't control, geopolitics and economics, right? But the basic demand fundamentals of people wanting to live here, beauty, population, aging population, all that stuff, the immigration, you know, foreign interest, it just, it's all firing. So that's part of why the resale market is going to continue to struggle to have supply and the pre-owned market is going to continue to be attractive. You know, one, one more thing that we haven't discussed in thinking about specifically some of the markets we've talked about today, Kelowna, the Okanagan, also uh, Abbotsford. It's been kind of a catastrophic 18 months when it comes to, you know, atmospheric river, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, four months heat, ago. Heat domes. Heat domes and, um, you know, fires that that wage all summer in in the Okanagan. What's your take kind of on on climate, not only climate change, but how it's impacting not only the livability of these areas, but then now the purchasers moving in this area. And have you seen a shift? Because for the first time in a long time, Matt and I are starting to get, well, for the first time I think ever, is when investors, uh, when you first talk to them, global warming and climate change is at the front of the conversation. Yeah. So I'd say a couple of things on that. One is that probably as much as we dealt with fires and flooding and bridges, right, you know, and all this stuff, and highway closures and everything. The one that probably reminds me a lot was that week that it was over 40 in Vancouver. And what if we had two months of that? And I remember sitting there because I had a friend in town uh, for business. And so we were going to meet him. So we checked in that morning to the Fairmont and we were staying with him for a couple of days. That afternoon, we came out from a business meeting to meet our spouses and go out for an early dinner. And the Fairmont was lined through the lobby with families and their dogs trying to get into condominiums because Generally, the only reason people had air conditioning in downtown condos in Vancouver before was just to deal with noise, being able to keep the windows closed, not to do with needing it, right? So, you know, I think that we're going to see more volatility. So we're having to go, okay, you know, pretty much you have to give people air conditioning as an option these days, right? And whether, and now you need to find a way to do that in a way that's climate friendly. So, you know, the reality is we're going to have to, this whole idea of this passive house we're doing in Vancouver, the largest passive house in the world. It's such a weird marketing term because it makes it sound like a place you live where everybody's just kind of walked on as doormats and doesn't assert <laughs> themselves. But really what, what, it, what it means is as a marketer, I'm dummy, it doesn't mean that. It means it's passive on the environment. So we're going to see more of this. And I think what's going to happen a little bit like Tesla is in the past, people were excited about green right? And lead and all this stuff, but they wouldn't pay you more for it. Not very many. 
Right. And now I think people are willing to pay for it. So we're going to see more, more initiatives like that in terms of, you know, people wanting to have more advanced features. And I think people want to consume a little bit more without guilt, right? They're going to be a little more. So this is big, the, the, this passive tower in downtown Vancouver by the, you know, the St. Paul's is being moved. It's going to be an interesting to see how that market accepts that. The other thing that troubles me about our market is that increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. And that's not good for society and, and that tension behind that. And I think some of the buildings that are pushing for the – sometimes the cities drive me nuts. Other times, you know what? They were ahead of the times, but they're not wrong. Pushing us to do more three bedrooms than we need in condominium buildings in Surrey, for the most part, is a bit odd. Because I think they're 10 years ahead of families really wanting to live in that structure. But in five to 10 years, you know, like North Vancouver, a three-bedroom apartment at $900,000 is pretty attractive in a good location if you're a family because you don't have a million five for a townhome, right? right? So I think some of what they're pushing at is good. But, you know, I think we do have to make sure that we're creating, you know, definitely being as marketers, being more mindful of trying to create a, an inclusive society that's aware of climate change, but still is able to practically build housing and in a way that people can afford to buy it. But they will, most people now, I think, will consider paying a bit of a premium to have some aspect of, of you know, sensitivity on the environment by what they consume in housing. And and that's actually, we just had, uh, the episode hasn't aired yet, but we just had Passive House Canada's CEO, Chris Ballard, on talking about the future of, of Passive House and and the, the take seems to be that that most buildings are going to be built kind of with the envelope first technology and and that that's what will be the biggest change kind of coming to multifamily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the challenge for us is okay, let's get innovative and figure out how to do it cost effectively, right? Because normally any new technology is bloody expensive when you introduce it. And as more people use it, ideally the cost of it will come down. You know, so it, it, how was he passive? <laughs> <laughs> Energetic. Uh, but, but, God, I was going to assume he would be, but I was saying, gosh, shucks, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's such an interesting, like we, we've talked about, you know, how to, to make single family houses more efficient and environmentally friendly on the show. And one of the conversations there was, you know, at that time, I think the tents were still up at in Strathcona Park. Um, right. So you're like thinking about, how can I make this house so environmentally efficient and how expensive that is? And at the same time, you know, we have this housing crisis and and people living on the streets. It's kind of this, you know, both need attention, but it's how do you thread the needle, right? Yeah. And it's also the big thing is, is the consumer, like generally if single family doesn't make sense from a density environmental perspective, everything like urban sprawl, like where you're constantly adding more roads and infrastructure because you have these houses spread so far apart because people want some type of the yard, which I understand. But as you start to look at that, you start to wonder, okay, is our culture ready for that much sharing? Because when you go to other cities like Hong Kong or something like that, they're very comfortable living with shared walls and in larger facilities with lots of people. And I think inherently, there's still some of that BC historical culture of rugged individualism and I don't want to share anything. Right. right? Just thinking in that is probably, I feel like in Vancouver, like the city of Vancouver is a little bit ahead of the curve, at least over the holidays. I, I left BC and I was, it seemed like the bike share, the car share, yeah. all this stuff that is, it felt like we were a bit in the vanguard compared to some other places in Canada. But, uh, but yeah. 
We are though, and I think that it's important to you know cycling and all that stuff. But I do think it's still there's still some practicality. I know there was a lot of people pretty ticked off. My friends in Vancouver when it snowed and the first thing that got cleared was the bike lane, and it's look, it's minus ten. Like nobody's riding their bike in minus ten. I've seen it in Saskatchewan. One guy rides his bike in minus thirty to university, but I don't think he was going to class. I think he was doing something else on campus. He's going to get grass. Yeah. <laughs> Selling space heaters. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, maybe we we'll, we can finish, Scott, with your crystal ball. We've kind of talked a little bit about 2022 and 2023. Are you comfortable putting some numbers on on the Fraser Valley and the market more generally in terms of uh, of what we see in terms of price appreciation or potential price appreciation this year? Yep. Yeah, I think I think what's going to happen is the first half of the year prices could appreciate still by five to ten percent, and then level off. And if you asked me three months ago, I would have said they would have been flat. I do think absorptions will be at or very similar to last year's level. So probably second or third best year, not best because last year was, you know, there were other factors combined that made it that strong of a year. I'm always careful to underestimate this market, but from a planning perspective, I think that no one should get worried. And, you know, if if all the, I said this back in COVID, I said, everybody like, you know, the first, six or seven months of COVID, the, the market statistics are going to look horrible because you're comparing zero to last year. And then I said the other way is all of a sudden when you compare 20 to 2021, everything's going to look like it's up significantly because 2020 was such a weird year. I think 2022 will be more normal growth or slightly off than 2021. And so it might not be as newsworthy, but it, but it shouldn't necessarily give people false fear or false um you know, hope either, but hey, it's just, you know, it's all roses and sunshine. It's just, I think it's going to be wavy, but steady. And so, yeah, we're, we're planning everything for growth and just also being aware of, okay, like, you know, but I do think that because I think costs are going to continue to go up, that's why my price number for this is probably based more on inflation of materials than it is straight on market appreciation. Right, right. Right. We've, we've had one conversation just to finish with them. There's always this thing you do that you get paid for and this thing you do that your clients value, but they don't really pay it for you. And ours, because a lot of our leadership team came from working developers is we talk risk with our clients a lot more I'm heard than some of our competitors. And so the risk is we've been actually telling our clients not to sell everything to hold 20 or 30 here and 40 there back because they really don't know when they're pre-selling right now, what their actual costs are going to be. So what happens if all of a sudden you sold thinking you could make 700 a square foot and your costs go up and, you know, we want to make sure they have some homes left that they could price at actual market closer to completion. So they're protected, but also I don't think it'll happen, but I don't want the consumers, somebody handing their money back to the consumer saying, sorry, it's been three years, but you know, I can't, I don't, BC's law is pretty protective of the consumer that way. It happened in Ontario a couple of times. Somebody's just like, no, I can't build this. Um, for this price. So after three years, I haven't started construction here. They have to, but there they don't. And so they handed their money back. Right. So you were out of the market for three years and thought you were in it. Right. So here that's not going to happen, but I do think that probably that wild card is, you know, less the interest rate, more what's happening with construction costs. Sure. And that's supply chain driven. And then you take out a highway and for a while, like we did, or two highways, like those all just compound themselves. Right. I've got clients who watch the price of lumber on their screen every day like it was their stock portfolio. (laughs) I'm sure you do. (laughs) Um, Maybe as a final question, Scott, 
you know, I, I'm thinking about just pulling back and looking at the province in general. I guess is is Kelowna an overhyped town, and uh, is the rest of uh, BC like where are the opportunities? I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of what the future looks like for uh, the rest of BC. So Kelowna is not is is not you know a flash in the pan. It, there's long term sustained demand there from outside the province. Interesting thing: twenty percent of our sales at one project in Bear Mountain and another one in Kelowna were from Ontario. People over fifty years old. Yeah. looking to move to BC. So Kelowna is both from a, a younger, more entrepreneurial and an older, more mature buyer, the Okanagan itself, but Kelowna in particular. Kelowna is really going to become kind of the Vancouver of that area. I think there's still lots of interesting development opportunities for both end users and investors. West Kelowna is going to go crazy with townhomes because it's one of the few places you can do large-scale townhome acquisitions of sites. I think the ones to watch next are Summerland and particularly Penticton. I think Penticton is completely undervalued and there's going to be significant positive development. Kelowna, Penticton downtown to me feels like Kelowna four or five years ago. Vernon a little bit too, but but it seems to get less attention maybe because it's more of a regional hub. Kamloops has got some legs to it as well, but it just doesn't have kind of the, the pixie dust that Kelowna and the Okanagan have on them, right? Because it just seems to be that people associate those. Maybe it's more with how their housing and their river works through their city. But I do think that there's some good, steady growth in Camelot. But I think Penticton's the one I got my eye on. On the island, Langford continues to be the darling in terms of wood frame. There's big projects. You see Reliance stepped in and bought a big piece of land there near the yeah. ocean there. Uh, those municipalities that and they what their biggest thing is there's very little development sites in Greater Victoria. You you pretty much have to start moving out. Everything's infill downtown, or you have to move up island. So I think. You're going to see a little shift there where Langford is now more like Saanich used to be, and therefore Cowichan and towards Nanaimo are probably going to become almost suburban markets, kind of like Abbotsford and Langley. So I watch those. Downtown Vancouver, I'm still, even with the growth in pricing, pretty bullish on, on the demand and the, the passion that people have for both Richmond and Burnaby and, and for North Vancouver. It's just hard to find development sites in North Vancouver. I think Port Moody is one to watch as it becomes the West Vancouver of the Tri-Cities especially as they're starting to introduce more high-rise view product near SkyTrain. So that that market is probably going to be the price setter for the region. Uh, it'll it'll fetch, in my opinion, more money per square foot and overall than even Como and Clark alone. Those are big numbers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. Around the, around I was gonna the say, uh, province hey, in under three minutes. There. Look, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> that, was, that was fascinating Welcome and to super my useful. If it's, if it's Tuesday, I must be in Kelowna. Wednesday, I must be in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, Scott, we have this segment called the Five Wire. We've we've had you on about six months ago, so we've kind of changed the questions up a little bit. But do you have time to stick around for that? Absolutely. All right. So question number one is, what have you been watching lately to disconnect? Murdoch Mysteries. Can't believe it. It's CBC. My youngest son, my wife, and I have been sitting down at night. Oh, we'll watch one one more, and then it's like 10 o'clock, like we watch four. I don't know why, but that's one of the best CBC, like, you know, there's some funny history references, but we were watching Murdoch Mysteries. Yeah, we were watching the counterpoint of Yellowstone, but Murdoch Mysteries has been the one since Christmas. Interesting. All right. And that was unexpected, but I'll, I'll, I've seen the commercials. I'll have to check it out. What song has been on repeat lately? <laughs> I don't know why. Probably because one of the guys in our fantasy football league had it as a team name. But that whole, um, you know, return of the Mac. 
<laughs> oh wow, <laughs> that's uh. Last time I heard that, I was doing the Running Man. I think. Uh, <laughs> there's a good one. Have you have you been buried in a, in a book lately, or do you have a, a book recommendation for our listeners? I have been buried in a number of books. I usually am reading. One of the ones I have everybody in the company reading is a book by a woman named Brene Brown called Dare to Lead. Um, right. That is a fantastic book on leadership. So we've got our whole company reading that. The other one, I picked up one and I hadn't opened it for years because I'm a big story guy, especially in our marketing, making sure the projects have a story. So I picked up a book about story marketing that I hadn't read for years. I open it up and it's called The Story Factor. And in it, the, my bookmark from the section I wanted to review from was from 2005. And it was a boarding pass when I was flying to Denver to do some work in Colorado. So Story Factor is my book. Right on. We're still in the start of the new year. It sounds like you guys have done a lot of planning over at Fifth Avenue, but do you have any resolutions personally you've set for yourself? I don't do resolutions, but I do do themes. And so my theme this year was pace. And pace does not mean slow. It means being more mindful each day about where I invest, where I place my time, right? who I place it with, knowing that you know, I can sustain certain very active routines because I, I do like to work, but also being more aware of when do I need to unplug? You know, so that whole pace thing led me to call one day a month. I take it off now. I don't work. I don't take email. I don't take meetings, but I, it's a work day. I call it a thinking day and I just sit and go online or I go walk around and I just, I'm thinking about what's the future going to be like in five to 10 years. That's a fascinating, uh, that's a fascinating one. We actually, uh, our book recommendation on our Instagram page this week was Effortless by um, Greg McCowan, I think his name is. But uh, that that actually reminds me, almost taken out of the book in, in, in that regard. That that sounds that sounds great. I was going to say Trump, Art of the Deal, to see if I could get you to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's next week's book recommendation. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought audiobook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not narrated by self. <laughs> And last but not least, do you have uh, something you've bought recently for under 1500 bucks that has uh, had a positive impact on your life? Yep. I bought a sound bar for one of our televisions that I watch NFL football on. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Sonos? Uh, yeah. And it basically takes the TV that was a decent TV with a big screen and makes it not quite surround, but definitely I bought it because I was the the football playoffs were going to be great. And I said, I, I you know, screw this. I got to go buy this thing. Cause I, I'm going to watch it on a good TV. It's got to sound good. It's incredible what a sound bar can do. It's like yeah. how much noise you can get out. of. <laughs> it's, it's shocking. Yeah. It was probably, it wasn't 1500, it's probably 150, but it's, you know, it's uh, that's one of my passions. And so uh, watching football to unplug and having the right sound so I can hear people, you know, it's funny with these new TVs, though. The picture's so clear. Sometimes somebody gets tackled and might jump off the couch. So they think they're Right on. Well, well, thanks again for coming back, Scott. Obviously, past guest fan favorite. Always great to have you on the show. How can people find out more about what you're doing over at Fifth Avenue and, uh, and at Baker West, Epics, all the boutique companies that you're a part of? Probably the best way is still use my fifth email and then I direct it to the leaders and stay involved. So that's Scott at F-I-F-T-H-A-V-E dot C-A. And, uh, you know, guys, you were so, in my opinion, so at the fore, at the head of your time with this podcast. And, and I actually really do look forward to doing it. And I, I just wish, you know, that your audience just continues to accelerate because you're, 
you're the easiest guys to talk to. You're wicked smart, but you don't have big egos. And so, again, the time just went by like that. So I really appreciate you, what you're doing with this. And, and all the speakers you have on are very fortunate to have an opportunity to share with you. Hey, well, thanks. Thanks very much, Scott. Uh, Adam's blushing. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we can hang up, hang it up now after that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Scott. And uh, yeah, looking forward to having you back. Okay. Enjoy the year. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with CEO and president of Fifth Avenue Marketing, Scott Brown. Really enjoyed having that conversation with Scott. Always super insightful and tons of takeaways, of course. Crazy about the price per square foot in Surrey. 1350. Uh, yeah. That's uh it's an interesting time to be alive monitoring this market for no sure. No kidding. It's it's also interesting, you know, I always think about that type of prediction and wonder, you know, how do you get to 1350? Well, it sounds like he's he's just it's it's all comparative. Yeah, I guess. I guess. But it's still, that's a challenging, challenging thing to do. But the thing is, they're selling thousands of homes, right? right? It's, it's uh, when you have your finger on the pulse like that. Well, this is what people don't get, or they do, some do, but a lot of people, I don't think they get it about pre-sale marketing companies. They are asked daily about, you know, price per square foot for pro forma and like price per square foot in that world feels like you have to know what you can demand, where it's going. What you can't demand, it's very, doesn't it seem very granular. specific? Yeah, granular in a way that it doesn't surprise me that Scott has thought about this and spent, you know, hours kind of thinking, well, where's the, where's the top? Right, right, exactly. And, and presumably putting together a, a lot of research to, to back it up. Sure. You know what they say? It's an art and a science. Yes. Is that what they say? I don't know. I'm not sure. It was just an art for your undergrad. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> uh, what else do we have for the day? What else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is where all things real estate related live. Things like the live wire. And before I get to live wire, I just want to say, I did take one science class. <laughs> take that back. I did. It was a requirement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what else do we have for the day? Just a reminder Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast.com. There's two podcasts now putting out exceptional content. Right. That's for sure. Corey Wright's last couple guests, Ravi Man. Yeah. That was a great episode. This is just a reminder. Check that one out. Douglas Porter from BMO, Chief Economist. Yeah. That was a great episode. He basically, Doug Porter does two shows, BNN and the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. <laughs> Those are his two go-tos. That's exactly it. But just a reminder to check that show out for sure. And uh, last but not least, Adam, of course, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's where our podcast, the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, and basically all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where you can find things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer where we're sending out stats before anyone else, updates to the podcast. We're also sending out VIP pre-sales for residential and commercial. The links, the links is the latest in East Van, just off That's commercial. That's an awesome project. Oh, just off commercial drive in between commercial and Nanaimo. Man, access is incredible, but it's such a great project. So, yeah. you know, people you know, on the live wire have access to that. When I look at East Van projects and their pricing compared to some of these suburban markets, it feels like it's some of the best value in pre-sale available when you look at it. You know, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting. A hundred percent. And I feel like that about Format by Cressy. I feel like that there's a few projects where I look at them and it's almost like you scratch your head and you say, this is Vancouver. 
And just a further on that point is, you know, there's a lot, and this is maybe because I'm kind of back on Twitter in a problematic way, but there's a lot of talk about frothy markets across Canada right now. And I, sure. and it's my understanding that Ontario, everybody's kind of talking about, you know, it's like Vancouver in 2015 type talk, like the bubble, the bubble is bursting. It's about to burst and blah, blah, blah. And I just think of Vancouver and, you know, we've seen some wild the last couple of weeks, especially some wild increases to pricing, but man, in relation to a lot of these other markets, right. The needle hasn't like moved. It, it as looks aggressively. like it's on sale and, and yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty, it's been pretty stable. It makes so. you think that Vancouver will be quite resilient if things do soften. Exactly, exactly. Across the country, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. And I just wanted to, there was a couple things I wanted to mention. We've got some amazing guests coming up. Follow us on Instagram. I think we said early on, but we are being way more active on Instagram. We're going to be doing video again. For a long time, we were doing video. We were putting these out on YouTube and now we actually are finally getting back kind of post-COVID to a setup that that works for putting out video. We're going to be having guests back in the studio. This feels exciting. It almost feels like we're getting back to normal here with COVID and, and things opening up again. And uh, this is just, it's exciting. And we also have private client services. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, if you have not used PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It is the best way to search for real estate in Vancouver. We have a ton of people on PCS that are actively and, looking and, and you know what? love it, it. It's for a market like this, it's the best for any type of market. But I often think, I said to somebody last night, if you see a property listed at $699, you know, it, there's a good chance it's sold for $699. There's also a decent chance it's sold for $900K. There's a, a, a wide range of where that sale goes. So yep. a system like PCS is perfect. It's a great research tool for that reason. If you want to talk about that, the links or anything else, you can try me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com or 778-866-4574. And Matt, what about that Kokomo that line? Kokomo line. And man, it's starting to feel real Kokomo in here. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. So have a great week, guys. And uh, we're back here next week with some more great real estate content. <laughs> have a good week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.